For those who don't know me, my name is Jake Fisher. I'm an MBA writer for Bleacher Report. Very pleased to be joined today by the Denver Post Nuggets beat writer, Mike Singer, uh, who's honestly been, for my money, been one of the better beat writers in the league this season, if not the best. I think he's got a very solid argument for it, not just blowing smoke because you're here. Thanks again for joining me, man. I'm, I'm pumped to talk to you today. I'm good, man. That was significant smoke, uh, but we'll take it. We're here for the smoke. Listen, like in terms of interesting features, in terms of being plugged in and like actually having legitimate information from the front office that like is worthwhile and not just like mouthpiece stuff, like, let's be honest. Like, that, that is something that ultimately when you're around a team for 40 years, like – your friends with people, whatever, not 40, but that was an exaggeration. Um, and I, I, I feel like I've, uh, I've been very impressed, uh, by just the, not, not, but you need to impress me, but you just, you just kill it, man. All, all over all aspects of the beat. So with that, like, I, I thought there'd be no better person to have on and talk about, uh, this kind of Tim Connolly sized earthquake that shook up the, the Northwest division. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, Five years, $40 million plus equity. When the emotions kind of pass and, and Tim and his family wrap their heads around what, you know, just happened, this place that they've called home for nine years, I think that, you know, when sober heads prevail, I think they're going to realize that they could not say no to this deal. It was such a mammoth precedent setting deal. Um, you know, I, I had heard that. Some executives were like, Tim, you don't have a choice here. You need to take this deal because it will set a new bar for GMs and presidents. And on the flip side, owners were, were looking at the Minnesota ownership group and Mark Laurie and A-Rod and Glenn Taylor, who's leaving in a, in a year. And they were like, what are you doing? You can't, you can't be offering equity stake, especially to a guy who hasn't won a championship yet. So when we talk about precedent setting, there is a new bar, and it was so compelling an offer. Let's be honest, Minnesota has to pay for a name like this. And when they scoured the league, they had names like Sam Presti and Bob Myers and Masai Ujiri. Those guys weren't going anywhere. They're embedded in their organizations. And the way it was described to me yesterday, one team made an offer that was you can't refuse, and another team made an offer that was, you know, okay, it was compelling. That's the Nuggets here. But there was a significant gap um, from what I um, from what I understand was the counter, and at the end of the day, Tim didn't have a choice. Am I like? Am I? This is different than the Jeremy Grant situation. Obviously, I'm like grasping for straws here, but I'm thinking of like other recent history of guys leaving Denver for what was just a different opportunity and theoretically like a, a less beneficial situation, but like the role and the money ended up winning the day. Is that kind of too, too broad of a generalization? No, it's not. Um, Tim just wanted to be paid uh, equivalent to the success that he's had. And he, you know, from my understanding was one of the. In the entire league. And it was an opportunity um, that he could not pass up. The, the money was there. The, uh, you know, the equivalent respect that comes along with that money. I think everybody saw him as one of the best GMs in the entire 
NBA. But now that that salary that he's getting is reflective of that. I don't know where it ranks. I don't think it's in the same um, ballpark as uh, as Sam Presti and Masai Ujiri. But we don't know exactly what that ownership stake means. We don't know how much that means. And Frankly, this is a new ownership group in Minnesota that is trying to make a significant splash and is trying to say, hey, we're here. We, there's a new face of the franchise, and, and we're going for it. And let's be honest, the Nuggets were a team on the rise, you know, quasi-contenders. The Minnesota Timberwolves, they're behind the Nuggets, but they're not that far behind the Nuggets. And the Timberwolves looked at, that, at Tim Connolly and said, this is a guy who can add immense value and respect to our organization. And, you know, he's kind of going to be a figurehead and, and show that we are really going for it uh, with this new ownership group. So I don't know exactly when I started hearing Tim Connolly's name pop up around there, but it, like preliminarily, like very loosely, because um, the word started to get around at Summer League from my understanding, Mark Wilbur and Alex Rodriguez had, not about Tim Connolly, but in general that they were looking for this big, fish to come in and lead their front office and and they took out a lot of staffers to dinner um in minnesota or during summer league and then you know the word started to get around about elton brand was someone that they liked and then he he apparently declined an interview in the fall um and then you know it kind of got quiet i think around the deadline you know with joe cronin in portland also in a similar situation to sasha gupta minnesota both running their teams as interim general managers. There are questions among executives all around the league, like, oh, well, how much authority do these guys actually have to, to really make these moves if they're not really the long-term guy um, in the future? And obviously Portland, they make a big swing with all their deals to clear the deck to try to, you know, we'll see how they how they actually pull this off and see what type of offseason they really can maneuver here, whether it's, you know, the trade for Jeremy Grant or whatever other options they have on the table at the seventh pick, you know, when, when, when the Blazers did do their, their teardown and then Joe Cronin hired Andre Patterson as an assistant GM away from Cleveland, um, you know, there was definitely talks of, all right, this is the kind of behavior that would lead you to believe that Cronin's going to get the GM job long-term and sure enough, he does. Then with Minnesota, you know, Sasha Gupta held Pat at the trade deadline where I think a lot of people in a situation who were kind of given a year to prove what they were capable of. I think a lot of people would have swung a deal at the deadline, not a panic move, but a move that would have been done just out of sheer necessity to make a move rather than something that was purely from a perspective of we think this makes our team better. And I thought, and I think a lot of people on the league thought that it showed a lot of restraint and responsibility uh, for Sachin to not have made a deadline decision. And then, you know, he gets to uh, make a decision on John Luca, uh, their assistant GM, on his uh, contract status. A couple of people, um, their contract status has had like options and stuff that kind of got figured out. So the word around the league was like, oh, well, maybe Sachin gets to um, keep this job after all. Maybe he will be just like Joe Cronin and the big names, the Messiah Juries you mentioned, like the. Sam Presti's like, those names weren't really popping up and, and would they be leaving? But Connolly's name would come up around March. And then on Tuesday night in the Combine week, I, I, I was there on the ground in Chicago. I was out with somebody and they said, you know, this deal keeps starting to be, you know, talked about. Like, I don't think it's actually going to happen. I think it's just going to be 
something that's a ploy to get more money from Denver, which is what Mark Stein wrote and his sub stack. A couple people in the league definitely were still thinking as the, the weekend entered that maybe that was the case. But Mike, when did this kind of flip from a theoretical thing to maybe it's just a money thing to holy shit, he could actually leave for, for Minnesota from your perspective? Yeah, a lot of layers. First of all, I heard about it in late March. Somebody said, Yeah, that was right around his name started popping up. Right. Somebody said, check on his contract status. Okay, I check on his contract status. Um, end up finding out he's in an option year, uh, which is never a, a great place to be. You obviously want to get extended. The point uh, that I've been making, you know, in, in stuff I've written for the Denver Post and, and, you know, on a podcast I do for the Denver Post is Michael Malone got extended in March. Um, and there's a there's an interesting question. Why was Tim Connolly not extended along with Michael Malone? I mean, does does KSC, does Kroenke value one over the other? Were they uh, a, a lot of this? What I think what happened ultimately in the negotiations is that I think Josh and Stan Kroenke overvalued um, Tim's loyalty to them because he is loyal to a fault. That is absolutely a trait of his. It's a double edged sword. It can hinder and help you in certain ways. But I don't think that they ever thought he was really going to leave. And so which creates an interesting equation in terms of leverage. And and you brought up leverage. Like, I don't think Tim ever was trying to leverage this. This was, you know, I've been raising this question. Is it a leverage play if something falls into your lap? If you are not going out soliciting and telling people that you are you know, looking for, you know, to, to re to, to rejuvenate a new organization and they just come to you, a new ownership group and say, Hey, we're going to throw the farm at you. Uh, how do you feel about that? Um, like I don't, I would not consider that a leverage play. Now maybe it became that. Um, and, and, and in all honesty, I, and I've said this publicly multiple times, Tim didn't want to go anywhere. It was this drew on his heartstrings. This drew, um, on, you know, certainly the relationship, the friendship that Tim Connolly and Josh Kroenke have. This was an extremely grueling decision for Tim and his family. And ultimately what happened, you know, he, he flies out there Saturday and he is dragging his feet. He is giving the Kroenke's a chance to rebut, to counter. He, he wants nothing more than for them to come to him and say, hey, man, we value you like crazy. We don't even want you to go back to Minnesota. We don't even want you to talk to them. Like, give me a deal right now. Like, th- that's what I think Tim wanted. And um, it never happened. It, it never materialized in a meaningful way. Like I said, there was a counter, but I, I think there was a pretty significant gap. And uh, this really picked up post uh, their post-Serbia trip, which I wrote about to deliver Joker, his, uh, his MVP, about two weeks ago and then it got serious and everyone around the the organization it was kind of just like you know they were dreading dreading the moment that it that actually came to uh reality and fruition and you know yesterday it did after what was like i said a grueling weekend for tim yeah so that was gonna be one of my first questions for you um i had heard that nothing specific but that um after that Serbia trip to bring the MVP to, to Jokic, that he was kind of maybe even expecting to have an extension talked about or brought to him during that trip, and it wasn't. And that's kind of what also might have started the ball here. Is that check out with your reporting? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. Expecting, ho- hoping, wishing. 
Uh, all I know is, is that there was a very, it, I mean, think about how sentimental this trip was. It's like, you're going out there to Serbia, flying across the world by, by the seat of your pants. You're going with the coach. You're going with the strength coach, an assistant coach who's in Joker circle. It is like an emotional, like fun trip. It is like, we are celebrating this guy that we found in, in the second round, who's just made NBA history, you know, into this remote part of the world. It is quasi romantic, like them going out there to just. I'm not playing. Like I know, I know, I say that in jest, but I'm serious. Like you go to Sambor, Serbia, you surprise this dude at his horse stable, you get Joker crying, which never happens, and it's like, man, this could there be a more perfect setting um, to extend the guy who drafted him in 2014 could there be a more perfect place to say to double down on on what they've built which is among the most sustainable and functioning organizations in the entire the entire league could they i I mean you know hollywood could would have a hard time coming up with a more hilarious remote awesome place for this this nuggets group um to double down on what they've done and it didn't happen and i think there was some uh i don't know if it's uh, just dejection or just a little disappointment. Disappointment is probably the right word. It's like, okay, well, you know, you've had an opportunity to extend me multiple, like any number of occasions to cut this off at the pass. And all Tim wanted was an acknowledgement that he's done a good job because yes, he got a bump after that uh, Washington flirt in 2019 and he, he got an, like a, a bump in salary, but it wasn't anything that made it that made him among the, you know, highest paid executives in the league. It wasn't close to that. Um, so he got some love, but it's like, hey, man, this team's made the playoffs four straight years. They've got to the second round three of the last four years. They, they might be in their golden age uh, around the best player they've ever had. Pay this dude. And yeah. um, uh, obviously did not happen. Yeah, to provide a little more context there, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from from my understanding, um, the number that he ended up being on after that Washington flirtation um, was between three and four million. And correct, that's um, correct. I mean, so he's basically doubling the salary now, and that's still not in the ballpark of these top guys. I mean, Daryl Morey makes I think it's over ten million dollars a year, right around there. Um, so right. it's may, maybe, yeah, maybe that's also where the ownership state comes in because it over time will net at a more valuable, you know, financial standing for Tim, because one thing that, you know, there was some debate amongst people that I was talking to over the last couple of days that the ownership stake thing was actually real or was actually going to happen. Um, and part of that, because. I don't know all the specifics, but I have it on very good authority that part of this agreement with Glenn Taylor and how it's going to take, you know, two years to transition. And by the end of next season, A-Rod and and Lori should be uh, the top two guys there. It's because they're still putting together the package to actually fully buy the team outright. And if they're not fully capable of coming up with the funds that they can then revert um, as minority owners, um, so they're kind of giving up percentages, whether it's a 0.5% stake or it's more, you know, because 0.5% of, you know, when the next TV deal comes in of $5 billion or something like 
the teams are definitely starting to talk about the valuation, you know, number being like a bare minimum three and a half million, like stuff like like the number that the Clippers went for once this new TV deal comes in. I mean, right. those are all just like pure conjecture, like nonsense numbers, but that's what people are saying. So 0.5% of $3 billion, you know, is a lot of money. Um, but they also, if they're not fully in control of the asset, then they're also like shedding a bit of their own valuation for something that they already, you know, to kind of put it in just like bald, overgeneralized terms, like something they already can't afford yet. So that was another fascinating wrinkle to me. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that, uh, that, you know, when you look at what the delay was, those two days after he met with Glenn Taylor and he and his family went to Minnesota, I think it was parsing through that. What is the transition from Glenn Taylor to, to Mark Laurie to A-Rod look like? What does equity really look like? From my understanding, the only, th- there may be other executives. The, one of the executives that I know who has uh, equity stake in, in his team is Masai. And I believe that he's around $15 million per year. So among the very elite top two, top three paid guys in the league, plus an ownership stake. So, I mean, Tim's not making that money, but we don't – I think there will be more reporting coming out of the Minnesota side, and we'll learn more what equity means, you know, because it's just such a nebulous term. But, yeah. you know, the way, the, the way people around Tim were, were deeming it, is it's a golden lottery ticket that you can't pass up. People were in his ear saying, "Man, I don't care. I don't care if this your team went to the finals this year. Like if this is on your doorstep, it, you would have to swallow so hard to punt on this." That was I mean, that's that's generation changing money and oh by the way, the Minnesota Timberwolves are not in a terrible place. Like no. he's he's not going to a a completely defunct organization. He's going to a place with, with strong pieces there um, already and relationships that he already has. I mean, he traded Malik Beasley and Jared Vanderbilt there. Uh, Chris Finch, the head coach, used to be an assistant coach in Denver. Like, he knows people there. I mean, Tim knows everybody around the league, but he has real relationships with the Timberwolves. And, you know, in terms of if you had to rank the, the places where he would, you know, want to go – it, it, it can't be that far down the list. And then you, you factor in the money and it's like, all right, man, who, who can fault you for, for, for making that move? And the other thing, I mean, I, you know, you know better than me, but all the word is how, of how close you already talked about it, how close a relationship he has with Josh Kroenke. I, I don't think he would have ever been really in jeopardy in Denver, but I would also think having, some type of equity would make him borderline unfireable in Minnesota, at least for, you know, at least a decade, right? Like it's a five-year deal, but how are you going to fire a guy who you believed in so much? You, you know, the valued part of your, your own holdings of this, of this entity. I don't know. The, the really tricky part that I don't know that we're ever going to hear the bottom of. However, there is a press conference tomorrow with Nuggets governor, Josh, Josh Kroenke. Um, to what degree did their friendship, uh, you know, overlap with the business component? And to what degree did that make that difficult? Because I strongly believe that Tim, um, you know, because of his relationships and because of this, this dude's not in it for the money. He's never been in it for the money. And so 
Uh, I think he was okay, you know, kind of in a pinch me scenario, still running the Nuggets. And he's like, wow, this is this is an incredible situation. Like to know Tim Connolly, man, he he thinks of himself as a scout at heart. And the fact that he got to the, the, the president of the Nuggets and is overseeing all these deals and, you know, a borderline contender when healthy, like he, he was he, he acknowledges fully that it was like funny money and he was in a fantasy land. And so I, somebody close to him told me that he, he thinks that Tim would have had a job for life under Josh. Now, would it have been equivalent with the money? Who's to say? Um, but the other wrinkle here is that as badly as Josh Kroenke wanted to keep Tim and, and, and may have fought behind the scenes to, to keep him here, um, Josh's hands are tied in a lot of ways because of his dad, Stan Kroenke, who, you know, basically the buck stops with Stan. And so how much can Josh negotiate when he's not the primary, uh, you know, kind of making these final approvals uh, on these deals? So it, it's a really fascinating wrinkle that the, the Kroenke's are generally pretty opaque and you're not going to hear a lot about this. It is rare that we're going to hear from Josh Kroenke tomorrow. He, I have never heard from him in four plus years covering this team. So for him to speak tomorrow is going to be fascinating. And maybe we learn a little bit more about that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, there's starting to be a narrative developed that, uh, and also one more, one other point about the equity stuff. Um, I've also been told that RC Buford and Pat Riley um, are executives with ownership type of stakes. Um, Got it. So outside of that, though, it's a really small group. It's four out of the 30 teams, right? Um, right. The other thing is, um, you know, the the Hornets get kind of labeled with it. Other teams get labeled for being cheap. Like, you know, the whole local – I'm not to say this is going to be – this is accurate, but um, there's now going to be a little of a stink to – the nuggets on like the NBA Twitter aspects of the, of the league conversation and what have you about like, you know, the TV package is what it is. And, um, you know, not, not forking up the money to keep your guy. Like they're going to start to get that reputation. Do, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's warranted? I, I think it's fair. Uh, you look at what, what happened with Masai in 2013. Um, he left, take a more lucrative deal, way more lucrative deal in Toronto uh, ends up winning a championship. You can't fault him for that decision. Um, you know, Arturis Karnasovas, he left. Granted, he left for a better opportunity in Chicago. Uh, Tim Connolly, you, you don't, you know, you, you, there's some level of hubris to think that you are going to keep, you know, getting this good at at, at finding executives and managers. Now, there, there's another aspect to this to this Tim thing where he goes uh, it, you know, in all likelihood, it's going to be Calvin Booth, who is the guy who will be uh, taking over and making these decisions. We're a month away from the draft, you know, a little Who's over a month. widely expected to be one of the top next GM candidates anywhere, a GM job open. Right. But think about this, man. A month ago, Michael Malone, end of the year press conference, he goes, this is maybe less than a month ago. He goes, this is going to be among the biggest off seasons in our franchise's history. And. Rather than leave it to the guy who built the house in Tim Connolly, we are leaving it to a first-time head decision-maker in Calvin Booth. So that's a lot of pressure on Calvin. Now, the flip side of that, the the glass-half-full side, is that, like I talked about, Tim Connolly is loyal to a fault. That being said, with Calvin there, he does not have the same – 
intrinsic ties and deep ties to some of these players. And everything that I've heard about Calvin as a talent evaluator, as a guy who's respected around the league, is that he's a guy who's going to go for it. Meaning, once the Nuggets get healthy and, and Jamal and MPJ come back next season, and you have your, you can really go for it. You have your horses. Like I believe that Calvin is going to be extremely aggressive um, in upgrading this roster, and, and and you know loyalty guys who have been there the longest. Will Barton's the longest tenured Nugget. Um, got there in 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 2015, and I think that everybody outside of Jamal and and Nicola are going to be to some level available because the championship window is here and you need a ruthless guy in that position to put you over the hump. I'm not saying that Tim couldn't be that because we really never got to see the the full iteration of this healthy team and what they could become, but I do believe that that will be Calvin. That's another question I had for you. Um, and it, I'm and jumping got, the gun. My bad. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's perfect, man. Um, and we've got two. We've got two calls in the queue. I promise I'm gonna get to you guys after after this. Thank you guys for calling in. Anyone else who wants to call in, we'll be here for another half hour. Um, now, because I was on the phone earlier this morning with someone, just kind of who who wouldn't necessarily know. We just we were just kind of uh, it was a team executive. We were just kind of spitballing general thoughts about this situation. And I did say to him. I wonder what's going to change in terms of, like, listen, as aligned as any, you know, number one and number two can be in a front office, no two people are going to think identically across the board. And I do wonder what deviations we're going to see now from Calvin Booth. Again, presuming he's the guy, I don't know for sure, but maybe that gets announced at this uh, availability tomorrow. But that's widely the expectation. And like I said before, I mean, if any GM got fired tomorrow and this hadn't happened, Calvin would have been on the short list most likely. Um, and I think Calvin's name was – I had even heard Calvin's name kind of loosely in the ether about this Minnesota job. Um, so, all that being said, like, you didn't mention Michael Porter Jr., so I'll make this a even more direct question. There was some kind of loose idea at some point in this last two years of this Bradley Beal song and dance of if he would leave or not for Washington. And – you know, in the spirit of the show, you know, I'm not saying a Michael Porter Jr. for Bradley Beal Bill guy talked about. For like, I want to be clear about that. But it was brought up to me by several people that, like, at one point in time when that idea was brought up to Denver, they weren't even like remotely considering it. MPJ was their guy. The ceiling was so high on this group. Denver also under Tim Connolly's kind of had a, a little bit of a knock, not in like a bad way, but just on potentially overvaluing the guys that they've drafted, like Malik Beasley, that, that deal that sent Vando and Wancho up there. That, that was really the first deal of, of this tenure that they really kind of cut ties with their rookie scale guys before having to pay them. Um, Nurkic was another one, but obviously that was more of a relation to the Jokic situation than, than like their thing on, on Nurkic. So um, all that's to say, like, what kind of do you expect, like specifically – Maybe you don't, but are there any type of real, you know, changes that changes of thinking that you're kind of prepared for now? Let's let's think about job security for a second. Uh, Michael Malone has a ton of job security; just got extended. Tim Connolly had a lot of job security. If he if he would have stayed here and, and re-upped and and you know found some kind of uh, common ground with the Cronkies, he would have had all kinds of job security. What does job security grant you? 
job security, it grants you the idea that the, the kind of attitude to be passive and it gives you a big runway. Um, when you don't have the track record that guys like Malone and Connolly have, what is the opposite of that? the opposite is aggression. The opposite is having to prove yourself. When you made the point earlier that Gupta sat um, at the trade deadline, that's a, that's a really poignant point because you didn't, you didn't make a splashy move. You didn't trade D'Lo to show that you can, you know, pull the big strings and you can, you know, decide the future and, you know, make your signature move that, that takes guts to not make a decision like that, to not put your imprint on it and, and, and prove patience. I think that because Calvin does not have the same track record and the same runway and leeway that those guys have, I think he's going to be aggressive. So what does that mean? This team was not good defensively this year. They, they ended up finishing middle of the road, I think 15th overall, in the playoffs, they were 16th out of 16 teams. Like anybody who watched that Golden State first round series, they couldn't stay in front of any of those guards. Granted, hardly anybody's been able to stay in front of those guards. Um, but the Nuggets are not good enough defensively. And if your core is Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., and and Nikola Jokic, maybe maybe Joker and maybe Jamal have the potential to be, you know plus defenders, maybe. But Michael Porter Jr. is not going to be. Um, so if we're just calling those three average defenders, you got Aaron Gordon there, who is a plus defender, although a lot was asked of him this year. So I've been po- I've been looking at Will Barton. Uh, he was the last starter there, and I've been saying that they need an upgrade at, at that shooting guard position who can play both sides of the ball. Um, they need a combo guard. PJ Dozier was their guy. He tore his ACL like last year. I think they need a guy to fill that role, a Tory Craig type role. There are moves sitting there to be made. And I think that just because they have intriguing young guys like Bones Highland and Zeke Naji, I don't think that those guys are off limits. I think that they are in a win now mode. They lost two playoff runs. Um, because of injury, and oh, by the way, they have the back-to-back MVP in the prime of his career. Like, in what world is this not go time for the Nuggets? Yeah, all good points. Will Barton, someone that I think, you know, nothing serious, but I think his name was definitely being discussed around the deadline, um, at least from teams calling an inquire. Um, but I think that was definitely something, an area that uh, Nuggets personnel highlighted, like you said, as an area of weakness. So, um, and, you know, Najee's, Najee's got a lot of value in terms of, of, of an upside type player. Um, I know Denver really liked him, but again, you know, Denver really liked him could just mean Tim Connolly or it could mean a large portion that, that, that didn't really include Calvin Booth or maybe Calvin Booth values his trade value and what he could get back right now more so than the long term there. Um, you also mentioned Aaron Gordon and might as well then bring on uh, someone who knows Aaron Gordon pretty well. Uh, Burton, you're on, you're on mute, but feel free to unmute yourself and join us, man. Oh, boy. Still on mute. I was just about to say, how am I not going to join this call? We got, oh, my God. We got Mike Singer and Jake Fisher in the same virtual room at the same motherfucking time? Let's oh, go. I'm, oh, I'm imagining Fisher with his silver hair flopping around and a sport jacket on. Is that a, silver is that, hair? Am I accurate? I have silver hair now. 
No, you got long, singer. flowy locks. No, I got, I got so yeah, over I here. He's got sorry, flowy sorry. locks. I met Singer, yes. I met Singer in a sport jacket with, with the floppy silver hair going on. A sport jacket for a virtual room. How <laughs> lame do you think I am? <laughs> Pretty lame. Singer, That's good fair. shit uh, Good shit on this Conley stuff. Um, I guess my – I haven't had a chance to talk to you, but I guess my question is, like, if you were to put it in percentages and knowing the money was life-changing and the equity is life-changing, I guess depending on how you define life-changing, like how close was it that Conley wasn't going to do this? I mean, he didn't, like, he didn't want to go. Uh, he, he hasn't wanted to go for a long time, and he was not entirely comfortable with it until he saw what the counter is. And I know that ESPN has put out that, you know, he would make him among the highest paid executives. Um, you know, 14th is among the highest paid executives. 13th is among the highest paid executives. I don't think, I think there was a significant gap in, in what, you know, the Nuggets countered with and what Minnesota ultimately offered him and gave him. So, I don't know that it was ever that close. Uh, and I do think that Tim would have taken less money to stay in Denver. That's how much he loved it here. Um, but, you know, when push came to shove, Tim just wanted to be respected. And there were so many times that they could have ended this this flirt. Like, Tim did not want to get, you know, he, he just wanted to be shown love. And, be, and, and this is, frankly, that's not how the Cronkies operate. They don't preemptively show love, which is... I mean, frankly, an indictment. Like, they did it for Malone. Why wouldn't you do it for Tim? Um, you know, the guy who built this. And so uh, I think, you know, I think that there's probably some – Josh and Stan can audit this and say, could we have done stuff differently? Should we not have let this get to the final year? Probably. Um, that's, that's water under the bridge. Now, Tim didn't want to go, but they let a guy go to a Western Conference rival and also a guy go to the same division. And – that is pretty damning when you're talking about, you know, competitive stakes in the NBA. Yeah. One other thought. Sorry, Jake. One other thought. I I have the philosophy. I I hear you on Calvin Booth. Obviously I don't know him and he could be really aggressive. I actually think that like, if you have more runway, it gives you the opportunity to be aggressive, not passive. It gives you the opportunity. Like, I feel like Masai is a great example. Like I, I feel like he knew, okay, I got job security here. I'm here to make moves. Go after Kawhi. I feel like that's – I think it boils down to the personality of the executive more yeah. than it does anything else because, um, I mean, we see aggressive moves from Maury as well, right? Like, um, And you guys know how I feel about Maury. I think he's <laughs> totally incompetent. Um, so I, I just thought, like, not to – I think Conley's a great guy and great executive, like, I just thought he had opportunities to be aggressive and chose not to. And it could be because he's in love with his picks or because he thought it was going to work out. And and quite frankly, Singer, you and I talked about this. I think some bad luck happened. Like if Murray doesn't get hurt, and as great as the Bucks run was, I really think the Nuggets would have won the title or at least would have had a really legit chance to. The thing about Jamal Murray getting hurt too that people overlook is – that guy would have been the star of Team Canada in the Olympics last summer, which could have been massive for Sneaker and other off-court stuff. That just never got to materialize for him. We, Jake, you mentioned him. We we have not dedicated enough time to Michael Porter and how yeah. and how kind of he is a swing piece of the whole thing. I mean, I've had other people tell me amidst this whole deliberation the past couple of days that. 
maybe Tim's just running from a horrible contract um, that that may never you know pay dividends. You give him a max contract before you needed to. Tim doesn't deserve a lot of knocks. That is one of them, in my opinion, to reach an early max extension with Michael Porter before you needed to. You could have taken him to restricted free agency this summer, and you would have had all you had had a, a year more of information, which, by the way, included a year of back surgery where he played nine games. So, looking back, like retrospectively, should they have been less protective of Michael Porter Jr., who? You're right. Was bandied about in trade rumors, Burton. I know you were saying you got to do that that Bradley Beal deal twelve out of ten times. Uh, we're going to call that a hypothetical deal because I don't know if that yes. was ever on the table. But a, a name, a, another name that I had heard um, looped into the uh, to the Michael Porter stuff was James Harden, and w- this yeah. is Houston James Harden. Could you look back and say the Nuggets back regret not not? Not bring, I mean, James Harden certainly is a personality, and he would not have – he's a personality unlike any other personality the Nuggets have. But, like, in retrospect, w- when you're looking at talent aggregate, um, do they regret not moving on from Michael Porter before it got – I mean, at this point, that's a bad contract, and I don't know how you get off that. Oh, terrible yeah. contract. That guy's a real dummy. <laughs> uh, I, I never thought yeah. they should have paid Porter. Uh, aware yeah. <laughs> the the Porter deal, I I don't think it's something to run from. You know, I think that's like Tobias Harris in Philly. I think is probably the closest comp towards a team. Just like you ask why you do it, I think it's to a show faith in the guy, or also show faith to like everybody else. Like, hey, this is the we believe in this guy. We're behind this guy. Like, you know, and. and I think the way the NBA has has shifted so much over the last couple of years, it's been kind of this tug of war between management wanting to view management and the thought of complete of really, you know, looking at the NBA like Wall Street and and valuing all of your assets and your cap flexibility and all that type of stuff. And on the other side of the equation, the players trying to get back there you know, all the power and agency that they can have to decide their own fates, right? And it's kind of been this tug of war for the last, I don't know, decade, but it's really, uh, it's really exacerbated itself ever since KD went to Golden State, um, from my perspective. And then, you know, the summer of 2019, you know, I don't think would have happened without, you know, KD going to Golden State and the Kawhi trade to Toronto, like all that type of stuff. I, I really think it's been the last five years or so that's been, you know, really a tug of war in terms of this executives making their big moves and players trying to make their big moves. And in that, you know, kind of toxic workspace that's kind of been created here um, where, you know, now we're having these conversations about did the games even matter, blah, blah, blah. Like to the nuggets of a big, because I went to Denver in 2019, I think that's when we met for the first time, Mike. Um, yeah. And uh, kind of came out with this feature like a long time after I was there, but it was as they made their run to the Western Conference Finals about how in this player empowerment, player movement era that we're in, the Nuggets have stood out as one of these bastions of continuity and growth and internal development and all that jazz. So maybe that was part of it. Maybe that, that trying to feed their own narrative of like, we pick our guys who we know have good intel and are hard workers and just want to get better and are good people. 
and we want to show faith when and, and reward you when you actually do uh you know pay off the dividends of the you know the pick we we chose you at so maybe that was part of it too they're a hundred percent that was part of it they you know they value their guys. They have the most medical intel. They see what, what his attitude is. They see that he's a worker. Everything I've heard is that Michael Porter Jr. works his ass off when he's healthy. Uh, but there's a reason he dropped to 14. And there's a reason, I believe it was 12 other teams, passed on him because the Clippers had back-to-back picks and they didn't want yep. Michael Porter Jr. And The Kings, though, hyster- 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 uh, hysterically, they got shit on for not taking Luka. Right. And they definitely were, were thinking about MPJ too. They they definitely were. So, um, you know, it was a good gamble at 14 because you can afford to let him – you can be patient with him and you can let him rehab that first year. Um, but, you know, one wrinkle to this that I has never been explored uh, publicly at least is MPJ, he only played three games at Mizzou. Um Josh Kroenke played basketball at Missouri and I've always wondered whether there is whether, you know, to what degree ownership was pushing to um, keep Porter and pay him early and to say, we value you. You know, you always hear in these, in these early extensions, the fifth year or the fourth year, is it going to be a player option? What is, what is it going to look like if it goes to restricted free agency? And to your point about, Wall Street and valuing that, you know, the last year and how NBA executives view this, like they wanted to keep him for as long as possible. And that's one of the reasons you do the early deal Um, in retrospect. And and fine. They did that with Nicola. They did that with Jamal. That's fine. Uh, Those guys hadn't had multiple back surgeries at that point. And uh, he had had two and now he's had three and Oh, by the way, he is heading into the first year of a five-year max deal. Like, you know, who knows what that contract looks like? Who knows whether you can trade pennies on the dot? Like, I don't know what that yields. And and a fascinating question is, I'll pose it to you, Jake. Um, what is what does MPJ command in restricted free agency? Is a team still throwing him max money coming off a third back surgery, or is he getting, you know, let's say? 22 million a year as opposed to the 26 27 28 that he's going to get um, moving forward from denver so right now in this market um it's tough because I, I was t- i was talking about this today and i wrote this thing with deandre and zach levine i'm in atlanta today like all these teams are kind of the teams that have space san antonio Orlando, in theory, has space. Detroit, Portland can act as a space team or a room team, depending on what they do with Josh Hart. Um, and, you know, the Blazers and the Hawks are teams that are, you know, trying to build around proven all-star, all-NBA type guys and you know, are in these big swing positions. All these, all these shooters and landing spots all overlap. So, like, someone is going to player hoping for a payday, team hoping for an upgrade. Someone's going to end up missing out, right? Like, if the Pistons and the Pacers and the Knicks all want Jalen Brunson, but Jalen Brunson just goes back to Dallas, like Dallas people are, have been saying all along, then the Pistons and the Pacers and the Knicks are all going to have to look at the other options. Um, and in that scenario, like maybe a team would have thrown uh, a big a big max offer at Michael Porter Jr. because they had this money in their pocket. They were waiting to, to spend it, and the guy didn't materialize. But, oh, 
here's this guy who's got clear all-star potential when healthy. Let's take a shot on him. Maybe, maybe that would have happened, but no, I, I think, yeah. I mean, it's, he's not, he's not Ben Simmons in terms of like just complete question mark of what you're going to get long-term. Um, but I think just like how with Zion's upcoming contract negotiations with New Orleans, I've heard a lot of talk about how Joel Embiid's contract is going to end up being uh, kind of like a, a, a framework or a starting point for that. Um, I would think that any team that would be looking to make a max offer at him and restricted uh, free agency would definitely want to bake in that max offer with a lot of injury protection. Right. And I mean, 145, I believe, of the 172 million is guaranteed um, for Michael Porter Jr. going into that five-year deal. And you, you know, is it an albatross? Do you feel like you needed to pay him? Um, my point, my entire point, is it's been you want to learn as much information as possible about a guy before you have to commit, you know, years and money to him. And um, they had an opportunity to learn more information. And I asked Tim Connolly at his end of the year press conference a couple weeks ago, because we hadn't talked to him, um, at least in a, in a press conference setting like that. And I said, Tim, did you have apprehension, given his medical history, about reaching that early deal earlier than you needed to? And, you know, he, he says all the stuff that you talked about, we felt co- comfortable with it. We had his medicals. We knew he was in a good place or we believed he was in a good place. And then he wraps it up and he goes, hindsight's twenty twenty, which is um, an indication that, you know, to some level there's buyer's remorse. And, and, and of yeah. course there is. If a guy has back surgery, the year that you try to, you know, you want to see what he's going to become. Um, and especially this year, because he was going to play alongside Joker and really flourish without Jamal Murray and see and develop their chemistry, and you don't get to see that, of course you're going to be you're you're going to be smarting from that decision. So uh, I mean, Porter is really a swing piece, and should they have moved him, I don't know, but I know that Tim Connolly loved Michael Porter Jr. when he was the president, um, and obviously was uneasy or hesitant to, to, to move him, uh, for some, you know, banking on that injury history coming to bite him. So, uh, really, I I mean, I I don't know that there's a more pivotal swing guy on this Nuggets roster. Burton, we got another question. So you got anything else for us or or can I exit you stage left? I love you guys. Deep (laughs) down inside. I love both of you guys. Keep doing a good job. Thanks Burton. (laughs) All right. We're going to bring on. Um, I don't know if Zach's like my producer or just my, my call-in representative, um, but we're bringing on Zach right now. Zach, oh, invited you to speak. Didn't mean to do that. No, oh, okay. Uh, I, I, I saw you invited me to speak. I can leave the caller key. I can no, leave the stage. No, it's all good. We're here. Uh, we're here. We're, we're here. Uh, we'll, 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 boot, we'll boot you later. What's, yeah, what's Jake, on, you, man? you can call me whatever you want to call me. You can call me your producer or uh, whatever. Uh, whatever you're comfortable with, but, um, you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I joined the queue really to talk about Michael Porter Jr. You guys yeah. just, uh, you know, dove in on him a lot just now. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, rehash too much, but as a, as a Mavs fan and, and Mike, it's, it's great to talk to you. Um, I'm a Mavs fan as Jake knows. Um, the Michael Porter Jr. deal really has given me shades of what the Mavs did with Porzingis and uh, and again, I know you guys just covered this, but that contract um, with Porzingis on the court was just impossible to trade. And you saw eventually they traded for Dinwiddie. 
Um, do you think the Nuggets, Mike, or maybe Jake too, would, do you think they would entertain an offer for Porter right now to kind of just like not even negative assets, but if they could get out from under that contract, just because a back issue, you know, historically players with back issues, it doesn't get better, like lower, like even Embiid, it was, if I understand it was like leg injuries. And, uh, so I guess I'm curious just. Um, how much trouble the Nuggets may think they're in with Porter. I mean, publicly, nobody's going to cop to anything. They think that, uh, you know, they sat him out uh, as he was trying to come back in March, and that that was a big picture decision. Um, I think that Mike wanted to come back. He was trying to. I reported that he had a setback, um, you know, in, in his back just from overwork and pushing it too far and too fast. Uh, so, you know, you ask them, they all they all say publicly he's going to be fine and uh, we're, we're past the back stuff. But to your point, Zach, are you ever past the back stuff? Is that a phrase that is just fruit? Um, so would they ever entertain an offer? I think depending on what the offer is, if, if, if someone viewed him as not a negative asset at this point, if he viewed him as just a neutral asset, um, then I think that they would definitely entertain an offer. I don't know what it would return. Does it return uh, David Bertans and Spencer Dinwiddie um, and players of that ilk? Or, or can you actually get, you know, one player back who's on a big deal? Uh, it depends what it is. But, you know, like I talked about with Calvin Booth's approach, I think that if you can reset the decks um, and, and is there any because there's no player on the Nuggets roster who has a bigger question mark than Porter. And if you can't move him, and if you're not entertaining that, I think that we are in these next two years, if he can stay healthy for two years, this is it. These are the windows, because can you bank on anything in years three, four, and five of that deal of Michael Porter being healthy? And can you bank on one one third of their max players not being there? And can you compete? And the answer is probably no. So I think absolutely, if you can reset the decks, I bet you they would listen in a heartbeat um, on a legitimate office reporter. Yeah, and, and so one last follow-up on that uh, before uh, Jake lets Charlie talk. Um, do you think, you know, you said last year, I would have thought was surprising, as you said last year, the Nuggets probably think they would have won the title if Jamal was healthy. Um, publicly, they may not acknowledge it, uh, but do you think they still feel that way? given the question marks with Michael Porter? And, and if so, is there any uncertainty whatsoever about Jokic's long-term future? Just in conjunct, like, would, basically my question is, would Porter's status affect Jokic's future in Denver, do you think? I, I don't think so. Um, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk to people connected to Joker and, and ask how he feels about it. I think he's going to sign that big deal this summer he's going to get locked up for a quarter of a billion dollars and which is just funny money biggest contract in NBA history and I think he's going to stay here he's talked about how he wants to be a a Dirk type how he wants to be a Kobe or a Tim Duncan type and play for one franchise his, his entire career and I think that that's kind of the the archetype and the prototype that I see his career going um I think that after they made the Aaron Gordon trade uh 
I think there was about a two week span where they thought they could win the championship. They they mm-hmm. reeled off like I think they were like nine and one or something. They I beat think it was eight and zero to start. Yeah. Uh, okay. Eight, so they, they reeled off this crazy run where everyone was like, "Pinch me!" And it was like, "Man, we got our defensive guy." You know, we got our guy who can defend the wings and Aaron Gordon. We traded young assets and a first round pick and RJ Hampton. Um, we got Aaron Gordon who wanted to get out of Orlando and we're, we're good. Like we, th- there was that two week stretch where everybody within the Nuggets organization thought they were legit championship contenders. And then bam, Jamal's left knee gives out and, and that, and it is what it is. Like they've lost two excellent championship chances and you guys know this you don't get that many chances you 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 know these are fickle if you have one really good thing where everything aligns like then one out of the last three years if they go into this year healthy and everybody stays healthy then one out of the last three years they will have had a legitimate chance to win a title so this stuff's fickle um I, I think that healthy, they can compete. And, I, and, I, and that's, again, why I've already heard, I think there are designs on, and obviously every team says this, but I think there is a, a mindset of being aggressive this year, knowing that, you know, who knows? Who knows how long Porter's back's going to hold up? Who knows if Jamal has some other setbacks as a result of coming back from his, his you know, torn ACL? Like, who knows what happens? You can't bank on this. It's too, it's too fickle. Um, this year, I expect the Nuggets to be to be aggressive, and I expect them to contend. Although you guys know this, the West is is stacked uh, and, and pretty scary um, going into next year. For sure. All right, we got one time for one more call. It's from my favorite caller. Mantle is open for anyone to take. You just got to call in. But Charlie's a consistent participant. Always brings some heat. Charlie, how you doing, man? Good, man. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. What a designation. <laughs> um, hey, I, I I was listening to somebody uh, talk nuggets yesterday, fellas. I clearly have a problem. I consume so much hoops content. I can't remember who it was, but they were saying that like Denver's basketball staff, their you know basketball ops people. There's other analytics staff around the league with like a bigger budget and more analytics people than the Nuggets had. Um you know, whatever you call like the assistant general manager, basketball ops, that whole personnel, I guess it would be called. But uh, it got me thinking about like shoestring budgets. And as fans, you know, obviously we know this the team player salaries, but we never really think about like, I remember back in the day, Paul Allen, there was a saying like spend Paul Allen's money was like a big thing, you know, where he was just kind of he would let green light what it, so how big of a designation, like how, how big did that hamstring Connolly with what he did in Denver and who are some of the other um, frugal owners from just the basketball personnel side that we never might not think about? That's a great question. I don't know who, I, I, I can't speak to the other owners that are in this vein, but I can speak, you know, with, 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 from an educated perspective from the nuggets and basically they don't have their own practice gym. That it, that part is damning. Most teams do have their own practice gym now. Um, I don't know how intimately you followed basically, you know, the Nuggets the past couple of years. They've been off air to the majority of Nuggets fans in Denver due to this like RSN dispute that is just it is a, 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 just a pock on on their resume the past three years. It's, it's really a stain on the NBA's resume, too, that most people in Denver have not been able to watch the, the 
you know, the back-to-back MVP. They've missed Joker's back-to-back years. Um, I heard a story that there's a guy, one of Tim Connolly's friends told me this, that Tim wanted to hire him, but Tim thought better of hiring him because he knew that the money wasn't going to be good enough. Like that's, you know, that is Tim being a, you know, considerate of his guy, but also it's an acknowledgement. They don't pay. They, they do not pay equivalent to what other organizations pay from um, basketball staff, from, you know, you know, behind the scenes guys they, they are among the lower ones, you know, coaches, uh, stuff that you outside of the player rosters and the salaries, the, the other stuff is not there. It is a lacking organization in my understanding. I don't have it relative to other teams. I just know, you know, from talking to people there, it is, it, it is an indictment on, how much they value their behind the scenes guys. Sure. They'll pay Joker. They'll pay Jamal and Porter. Um, but guys who make, make it, you know, keep the lights on and make everything work. I think they are hesitant to pony up, um, you know, and this isn't Paul Allen's money. This is uh Stan Kroenke's money. He, uh, he doesn't like spending it. I think Charlotte's a team that gets mentioned a lot for being frugal in terms of staffing. Um, Boston gets mentioned a lot in terms of like always having a small situation there. Not to say that they don't spend a lot, but I mean they kind of go hand in hand, right? Like I, I'm not saying the Celtics get a, a rep for being cheap, but they're just well known to be a very small operation. Um, in terms of other entities not being considered uh, loose with their wallets, I mean the Lakers are always mentioned as you know they don't necessarily pay that much, um, being that. As we learn in, in winning time, one of the accurate details in that story is that, you know, the bus family, basically a lot of their, their wealth is from the Lakers. They're not Joe Sy coming in with Alibaba money and all these other new tech billionaires. Um, so it, it, that's kind of a general, I think, assessment. Like right now, the, the league is kind of being split in terms of ownership figures between the haves and the haves are pretty typically – the, the new tech Silicon Valley money people um, and the have nots who, um, and, and also uh, in addition to the tech, the, the, the tycoons, the investors, the venture capital fund guys, like the, the Apollo global guys who run Philly. Like th- those are the, the wealthier people the the newer owners, the older owners are you know, Herb Simon in Indiana, for example, is, is always talked about wanting to make the playoffs to get that gate revenue. Um, that's kind of the general disparity, I would say. I think that's fair. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we've reached the top of the hour here. Mike, this was awesome, man. Uh, like I said at the top, no better person to uh, touch on all the inside happenings of Denver. Um, I look forward to continue to read you, man, and uh, hope to see you in uh, Summer League down the road. A- anything you want to plug right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you haven't read the story about, um, the Nuggets going to Serbia and surprising Joker, uh, I pinned it atop my Twitter profile at M Singer. Uh, really proud of it. I talked to a lot of people for that. Um, I think the Nuggets were proud of it too. And in retrospect, it's like, okay, that was the swan song. That was our last hurrah, um, all together because weeks later, Tim's out. Uh, one of the pillars who built that is out. And so it, it kind of gives a new perspective when you read that. But, Jake, appreciate you having me on, man. This was fun. You got it, man. We'll do it again sometime. And uh, thanks to everyone who's, for listening. 
I'll be back uh, next week. I'm going on a, a trip for a wedding, not mine, but uh, someone else's. And uh, I will be out of commission until next Tuesday. Until then, good luck to the Celtics and the Warriors uh, and the Heat, who are all still kind of in it. Mavs fans like Zach, sorry. But uh, enjoy the games, everyone. Take care. Have a good weekend. Stay safe.